Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Brian Kilmeade. I'm Kennedy. I'm Sean Duffy. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, May 31st, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Will affirmative action at universities and colleges end if the Supreme Court rules against considering one's race in admissions? I've said this for years, that the universities have shown great ability to circumvent these rulings. I think they'll do it again. I'm Dave Anthony. The housing market has been slowing down, along with the economy. That could be good for buyers. If there is a recession, you can expect those interest rates to go lower. Prices are coming lower. So a little patience here. Six months, 12 months could put you in the driver's seat. And I'm Tim Bush. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Can a university or college consider race in its admissions processes moving forward? That's at the heart of one of the many remaining Supreme Court decisions yet to be announced this term. Students for Fair Admissions is challenging the admission processes at Harvard University and within the University of North Carolina system. They allege Asians have been excluded at Harvard and that Asians and white people have suffered due to affirmative action policies at UNC. During oral arguments last fall, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson questioned an attorney with Students for Fair Admissions. The rule that you're advocating, um, that in the context of a holistic review process, a university can take into account and value all of the other background and personal characteristics of other applicants, but they can't value race. What I'm worried about is that that seems to me to have the potential of causing more of an equal protection problem than it's actually solving. After hearing from North Carolina Solicitor General Ryan Park on behalf of the University of North Carolina, Justice Clarence Thomas said, I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times and I don't have a clue what it means. Uh, It seems to mean everything for everyone. To that, and to Brown-Jackson's earlier point, Park said, There are many different diversity factors that are considered as a greater factor in our admissions process than race. Uh, We have a particular interest in recruiting and enrolling rural North Carolinians. The universities insist race may be a factor, but it's just one, and that they've adhered to precedent here. As the Supreme Court has previously said, such consideration is allowed. Well, the oral arguments broke pretty much as most of us expected. You had a clear opposition to the challenge coming from the left side of the court. Jonathan Turley is a constitutional law expert and professor at George Washington University. So Justices Sotomayor and and Kagan, and in one case, Justice Jackson, really spoke strongly against the basis of this challenge. Uh, Justice Jackson participated only in one of the cases because she was serving on the board for Harvard uh, during the relevant period of these actions. The oral argument was interesting to watch, particularly in the, in the interplay between the lawyer for Harvard and the court, uh, Chief Justice Roberts kept on needling 
Harvard and asking if Asian Americans simply have no personality, because according to what the challengers are arguing, um, Harvard created a test that included interviews and essentially a personality ranking. Asians tended to be graded lower on that criteria, which made a difference in how many of them were accepted uh, at Harvard. And so Chief Justice Roberts kept on asking, what is it about Asian Americans that you think are not uh, really competitive in terms of their personality or their contributions? And it's, at certain points, Harvard sort of floundered on that one. The other thing that was interesting is that the general rate of admission remained fairly constant during these years. And they also pressed on that how uh, if you're doing individual decision making, these percentages seem to be so uniform. So it was a very interesting argument. A lot of it came down to statistics. A lot of it came down to the veracity of these universities. As you know, a group of liberal arts college professors signed a letter saying a decision that would not allow the consideration of race would make our academic institutions less diverse and, quote, would be tragic. Um, they write, to fulfill the promise of economic and social mobility, we need to continue rectifying these systemic barriers that have kept so many talented students of color out of higher education. I wonder, as you listened to the oral arguments, how important was it to the case that Harvard and UNC needed to make this idea of systemic barriers that needed uh, assistance in overcoming? Well, some of the justices pushed back on those arguments, particularly Justice Thomas, who did not believe that universities should be in the business of selecting people by their skin color or seeking to maintain this diversity quotient as opposed to maintaining high levels of educational standards. But there were also more nuanced arguments. Uh, many of us have argued for years that the greatest diversity that we see in our classrooms, the ones that are most relevant and beneficial in classes, tend to be economic diversity, where kids come from. It, it's, it's not necessarily mm. racial diversity. I have many African-American and other students of color who come from very affluent backgrounds. The, the the most interesting comments for me come from the students from all races who are coming from impoverished backgrounds, rural backgrounds, areas that are not represented to the same degree at national uh, law schools. So this is part of this ongoing debate. But really, one of the things that uh, really played prominently in these debates is the fact that the court has always struggled with affirmative action. We've had decades since the Bakke decision in the 1970s, where the court just kept on flipping back and forth on whether race-based programs were constitutional. Technically, Bakke got rid of affirmative action in higher education. But universities, as you might imagine, are very creative and they find ways around that. And what happened is that the court allowed for universities to consider race as part of an overall context. And what the complaint has been is that universities used that and maintained what is effectively an affirmative action program that Bakke rejected. Mm. And the, the really interesting moment, I think, came when justices reminded these schools that in cases like Gruder, the court was very uncomfortable with continuing the use of race as a criteria. 
And Justice O'Connor, in one of these prior cases, said that she did not believe that the court would continue to allow race to be considered uh, in 25 years or whatever period she mentioned. Well, that period is basically run. Uh, it, it, this The time is up. And so a number of these justices, including Chief Justice Roberts, said, look, you keep on citing that case. This court, according to O'Connor, gave you a period that's now expired. So why are you citing that case? We said back then that we wouldn't be comfortable right now continuing that type of criteria. Yeah, I read that. That was a fascinating part of the arguments, that this idea that, it, that there are sunsets, right, that things expire at, at some point. Um, a Harvard law professor, though, to your point about creativity, told the university newspaper that a university like Harvard, at a university like Harvard, you know, not much would change, even if the Supreme Court ruled against considering race. And the college board in advising universities to prepare for this ruling said, you know, make sure you're applying a DEI lens, a diversity, equity, inclusion lens throughout your institution and message to your students that your DEI policies still apply and will remain untouched regardless of the Supreme Court. I wonder, will much change even if the court rules against considering race? I don't think it will. I've said this for years that the universities have shown great ability to circumvent these rulings. I think they'll do it again. Some schools like the University of California have moved against the consideration of any objective scores like the SAT because mm-hmm. it interfered with getting greater diversity in their classes. Well, if you remove standardized testing, there is very little ability to prove affirmative action or race-based criteria because you don't have as many objective uh, data points. Mm -hmm. So um, what's fascinating is that they've already started to put into place a system that will make it difficult for the next round of challenges. And I think what's going to happen is that universities are going to develop subtle ways of achieving the same result. People will write in their essays about what it is like to be a person of color so that school will be aware of it. Uh, mm. You're going to have DEI policies that actively, you know, select students without necessarily mentioning race. Um, and so those things are going to likely be used to negate a decision. But that still doesn't mean that the court would consider this type of ruling to be without value. You know, Chief Justice Roberts has repeatedly said that the best way to end discrimination is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And he still clearly maintains that. So there's some on the court that want the clarity mm. of removing this criteria from uh, from application processes. Let me get your brief thoughts on a couple of other cases. Um, one is considering Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, how congressional districts are drawn. This is out of Alabama. Section 2 prohibits voting practices or procedures that discriminate on the basis of race. Some advocacy groups said the way that Alabama drew its congressional map last time was discriminatory, that there should be two African-American heavy districts, not just one. I wonder what the implications might be here for future elections and other states and drawing maps depending on this decision. Well, there's a couple of cases like Merrill that you just referred to that could have pronounced impacts. One, as you noted, is whether the court will continue to narrow the Voting Rights Act and its application to states. Uh, There's also a case called Moore, where you have Republicans arguing that 
courts should have no role in their districting decisions under the Constitution, which refers to legislatures as setting mm -hmm. these rules for elections. The combination of those cases could have a very big uh, impact. A case that is probably my favorite of these matinee cases is 303 Creative versus Elenis. And as someone who writes a lot in the free speech area, uh, this is, in my view, potentially the greatest free speech case hmm. uh, in, in decades. And I, it is hard to overstate uh, the impact of 303 Creative. See, for years, we've gone through this question of whether states can force people who do creative products like photography, bakers, uh, web designers, as in 303 Creative, whether they can require those people to produce products for same-sex uh, ceremonies or other types of events that they have religious objections to. And this was an issue in the, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that went right. to the court previously. The court took an off-ramp uh, and ultimately sort of ruled in the favor of the baker in that case, but really left him dangling in the wind. 303 Creative is everything Masterpiece was not. Hmm. Among other things, it went to the court raising both free speech and religion clause challenges. Um, some of us have written, including myself, that we believe these are really free speech cases, not religious cases, and it should be resolved on free speech grounds. Well, that's why I was happy when the court accepted only one question for 303 Creative, and that is free speech. Hmm. So it could be now laying the groundwork for a major decision uh, that will address this question of how far states can go in requiring people to essentially speak. Hmm. Professor Jonathan Turley, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is Tim Bush with your Fox News commentary. Coming up. What the Fed has been doing to fight inflation, raising interest rates, has been slowing the economy. Consumer confidence has dropped for the fourth month in the last five. But Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said earlier in May... The case of, um, of avoiding a recession is, in my view, more likely than that of having, having a recession. At the same time, Powell admits... The strains that emerged in the banking sector in early March appear to be resulting in even tighter credit conditions for households and businesses. And that can make it tougher on home buyers, already dealing with higher rates. Freddie Mac puts a 30-year fixed mortgage now at around 6.5%, more than twice what it was just two years ago. So previously owned home sales keep declining. And while new home sales did rise more than 4% in April, prices have been coming down 
for both. Inventory has been very much a part of the story of what's been going on in the housing market. Jerry Willis is a Fox Business Network anchor and personal finance reporter. But I have to tell you, we've seen a little minor improvement to those inventories over the past month. So that's good, but it's got a long way to go. So if you're out there shopping, my heart goes out to you because there is nothing to look at. Yeah, I mean, when we say nothing, I mean, there are houses, but it's like 44% below what the pre-pandemic level is. And when you say nothing, it can be frustrating because, oh yeah, you, you know, everyone has a couple of criteria. They want this, they want that. And once you start narrowing it down, the number of houses that fit your criteria become smaller. Let's face it. This is the kind of market where you have the house that you haven't previously been able to unload that's on the busy street, mm. you know, steps from the street. This is when you try to sell that because there, there's no inventory and it would be a good time to unload the property. So there's a lot of stuff you might not even might not even make your list out there that would be on the market. But at the same time, with prices being down lately, for instance, I think even the new home sales price is down from 8% from where it is. Let's talk about the big kahuna number here. The Case-Shiller number mm -hmm. down for the first time in nearly 11 years. Yeah. This, this is critical and it's a very big deal because for the last couple of years, what's been going on is that there's been a decline in the increase in prices, mm -hmm. right? Prices have been slowly slowing down and now they're negative. Typically, the housing market is like 10% new, 90% previously owned, but that has flipped to like, I think the new market's up to like 14, 15%. So that's a, a rising number. Changing. Yeah. Yeah, changing. I think that, you know, we finally got a situation where builders are actually getting the materials they need to build. And that house that they may have had sitting on a lot that was waiting for nothing other than the windows or the air conditioner or whatever, yeah. they've finally gotten that and oh, now right. they can put it on the market. I have to tell All you- All the supply chain stuff. So right. in talking to people who are very deep on people who build homes- what they say is that there was an incredibly large inventory of homes, especially in some markets where there's a lot of building typically, that were held off because they weren't quite done yet. Mm -hmm. So now that's starting to come on the market. And interestingly, people I know who are super smart about this tell me this will be a depressive on prices because more and more of this will come into the marketplace. Like a, a market that occurs to me is the Austin area, the greater Austin area. Lots of construction there. There's lots of land. And a ton of it had been held back for the reasons I described. But now you're going to start seeing that willy-nilly coming on board. That's going to slow prices and price growth. And that's not, I mean, for the home builders, that's frustrating. I mean, and there are people who invest in home building stocks, so they're very closely watching them. Let me tell you, they are so happy to get these homes on the market and off their books. They're thrilled. So even if prices they are aren't, thrilled, even if prices aren't great, they're, they're offering happy. incentives. Yeah, you know, I mean, they're they're desperate. They don't want to carry these. Mm -hmm. You talk about markets. You did Austin. When you looked at the Case Shiller, Case Shiller is twenty big cities that they track. Well, they do twenty, they do ten, and they have national numbers. Okay, so for the twenty though, the twenty big ones, when you break it down, because the housing markets not just a national market, obviously, as we all know, right. everything. It's all the cities you're in, Seattle and San Francisco. Yep. They're down double digits Seattle's year over down 12.4%. San Francisco down 11.2%. You know, there's a lot going on here. 
Portland is down 4.6%. The West is coming off. I think one of the themes or narratives that people are putting forward that has some resonance with me is that these Western markets, some of them attracted a lot of people during COVID because, say, you know, they were away from some of the major markets like uh, Portland, Seattle, were drawing some people off at the time, and now that's stopped. But, you know, look, those prices went out of control. So it's only makes sense. Look, if you thought as a homeowner that you were going to hold on to price gains of 40, 50 percent, mm, yeah. forget about it. Yeah. That's not the way the world works. Yeah. And I know people did cash in. There was in the middle of COVID, especially in rural areas away from cities, there was a big increase uh, even outside of New York City, some of the Catskills and some of the areas a couple yes. hours away, their prices went nuts. Yes, but and that... I have been a beneficiary of that. Thank you very much. <laughs> but they've gone down now. Well, they've level. stalled out. Yeah, they've stalled. They've stalled. Okay. I mean, that that didn't continue. But let me tell you who has done well, and that is the Southeast. Miami up 7.7%, Tampa up 4.8%, Charlotte up 4.7%. So the Southeast has maintained, that's a monthly number, right? A year-over-year number. But this has actually been going on for several months, many months. And it's because of the underlying economy in the Southeast is so strong. They have really hooked into a strong, vibrant, regional, local, statewide economy that is powering this housing market and attracting big population. What about the overall economy's effect on the housing market? We have had the economy slowing down. We have inflation coming down, but inflation's been hanging around for a while, a couple of years now. How much does that affect people's psychology of going to a new home or trying to do something? I think that's an interesting question because I do believe you're making a good point here, which is when the economy is going south. Maybe not even there yet, right? Mm. Maybe it's just sort of stalled out. You're seeing really high inflation and you're thinking, I don't want to make a big financial move now. I'm just a little unsure of the future. Worry about my job. What if my job doesn't last? Well, and that's interesting because we're seeing that uh, labor market, you know, some of the white hot ness of that market is cooling off just a little bit and we're starting to see that turn. That to me is a real tell for what consumers will do because let's face it, consumer spending has been on fire despite the fact that all those COVID dollars are long gone, that money you got Mm -hmm. from the federal government, that's been out of people's bank accounts for months now, but they have continued to spend. Will they continue to spend if the labor market cools off and you start seeing a situation where people can't find jobs, they're worried about their jobs. We're seeing like record number of layoffs right now, and not just tech, lots of different kinds of companies are laying people off. There's two sides to the housing market. There's the buyer and the seller. Yeah. So let's look at it from each perspective. What should a buyer be thinking right now? Well, so let's see. I think you want to go for opportunity. I know people like to buy at certain turning points in their life. You have kids, you want a house, you want to move to the burbs, right? Right, right. or but, downsizing because the kid's going to college. Great point. But I think you need to think about how can I take advantage of this marketplace? If we are, and some people say this, I'm no genius, but some people say we're headed into a recession later this year, maybe early next. If that's really the case, if you're one of the fewer buyers out there at a time when 
sellers are desperate to unload something, that's a good place to be. That gives you more power. Mm-hmm. And if there is a recession, you can expect those interest rates to go lower. Prices are coming lower. So a little patience here, six months, 12 months, could put you in the driver's seat. When you talk about interest rates, it's always attractive. People get these, uh, you know, the arm, the adjustable rates, right? Maybe three and one, five and one, you know, for five years, it'll be stable, right? Stable for five and then adjustable. Good or bad ideas? I don't think it's a bad idea. I really don't. But you have to be prepared with with a game plan for what you're going to do at the end of that term. Yeah. At the end of the five years, are you are you only planning to be in the house that long and that's why you're using it? Or are you betting that interest rates are going to go lower? you got to be honest with yourself. Right, because I know I refinanced my house at like 3%, right? Me too. And, you, and it's not close to that, obviously. It's more and than double not, that. You know, as, as you were, wanted to talk about both sides of the equation, so as somebody who might potentially be a seller at some point, I'm like, I'm not getting into a mortgage loan for 30 years that's going to have practically a 7% handle on it. I, I just don't want to go there. Yeah. So I'm not inclined to sell right now. Those who are still wanting to sell, what should they be considering? Well, look, I still think you're in a good situation because there's not a lot of inventory. If you have a lovely house that you've maintained over the years, good neighborhood, good school district, all those kinds of wonderful things. And even if it's at the margin of that, You should do pretty well here, I think, because there's just not enough inventory out there and there are still shoppers. It's not just people who don't own. It's also people who want to trade up. Don't forget about that because we typically think of, oh, how those kids who really want a house for their newborn, they can't afford it. Well, there's also lots of other markets to hit, right? Uh, Nesters who want to downsize. There's also people who want to trade up into a bigger and better house. Yeah. So at this point, the housing market, you think, is it in a period of decline or overall stable, slightly lower? Or are we headed toward a potential problem in your, at, at all? I don't think this is 2006 all over again. And I'll tell you why. We, we don't have that hangover of bad mortgage loans. The thing that really drove the decline in 2006 was this massive machinery of the mortgage industry and Wall Street working together and trying to get – and it was – oh, by the way, it was also the federal government requiring this to put anybody into these loans. They wanted everybody to get a loan. So that's why you had no doc, low doc, all of those disaster loans that eventually blew up. We're not in that situation right now. The biggest problem in the marketplace right now is people who want to buy cannot. They cannot afford it. So I would love to see that ease and get better, and I think it will. Jerry Willis, Fox Business Network anchor, personal finance reporter. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Other news. I'm Gianna Gelosi. A government official in India has been suspended from his job after he ordered a water reservoir to be drained so he could retrieve his smartphone, which he dropped while taking a selfie. Food inspector Rajesh Vishwas dropped a Samsung smartphone in a dam while he was taking a selfie last week. 
First, he asked the local divers to jump in and try and find the phone, claiming it contained sensitive government data. When that failed, he asked the reservoir to be emptied. Over the next three days, more than two million liters of water were pumped out of the dam. That's used to irrigate 1,500 acres of land in the scorching Indian summer. The smartphone was eventually retrieved, but it wouldn't even start because it was so waterlogged. Authorities later suspended Vishwash after he was widely criticized for wasting water resources. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Jalosi. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tim Bush. What's on your mind? Will the L.A. Dodgers ever be the same? I doubt it. One of the most storied sports brands in history is reeling. It's the result of management's foolish decision to invite an anti-Catholic hate group to an LGBT pride night, then rescind the invitation after criticism from the right, only to reinvite the group after blowback from the left. The flip-flopping wasn't the Dodgers' biggest mistake. The real issue is the baseball team waded into politics in the first place. I say this as a minority owner of two professional sports teams. I encourage anyone in the professional sports to avoid any involvement in politics for the simple reason that sports teams aren't political groups. We aren't in the business of taking sides in a cause, telling some people they're wrong while others are right, and wading into the most divisive issues of the day. Just the opposite. We're in the business of business, and we should stay that way. While the teams I co-own don't always steer clear of politics, my message to the Dodgers and every sports team, this is a losing game that will cost you dearly for decades to come. It baffles me that the Dodgers forgot this basic truth. I'm a Californian, so I love the Dodgers as much as anyone else. But my fondness for the team, built over nearly seven decades, never had anything to do with his political stance. I appreciated that the Dodgers built a good team showed fans a good time, and regularly competed for the highest honors in the game. That's the point of a sports team. Scoring political points is the last thing a team should ever do. Yet, that's exactly what a small but vocal group of activists now wants. They demand that sports teams, and every business for that matter, pick sides in our country culture wars. They want companies to take stands in everything from abortion, to marriage, to sexuality, to changing children's genders with invasive surgeries. Imagine if the Dodgers had never held a Pride Night, ever. Would some people have criticized the team? Absolutely. Would some media outlets have taken shots at the team? Sure. But the team wouldn't be in a pickle it is today. If it avoided politics, a handful of people would have been upset 
Instead, the team jumped in headfirst on one of the most divisive issues. Now, legions of fans in the Los Angeles area and beyond are likely to boycott the team, especially in LA's enormous Catholic community. But like learned the same thing when it threw its support behind transgenderism. Sales have plummeted, but they didn't have to. All the company had to do was stay silent on something it had no right to talk about. There's no point in raging your fan base, especially when people can advocate for their favorite political positions in the political process, in the voting booth, in the candidates' campaigns, and in the persuasion that happens around the kitchen tables and on social media. We don't need it in the dugout, the field, or the boardroom. Fans, sports teams, and business leaders have other things to worry about. You know, like supporting the players, strengthening the team, and running a business. The Dodgers have learned this lesson the hard way. Here's my advice to them and every sports team in every league. Don't hold Pride Night anymore. Don't hoist a conservative flag on some other issue either. Just stick to sports, which is the only reason people come to the stadium or turn on the game. If you don't, a lot of them won't come back or will change the channel. The Dodgers earn what's coming their way. I am Tim Bush, the founder of Pacific Hospitality Group. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.